Welcome back, nature lovers, to another episode of the Birdie Bunch Podcast. We're so excited to have y'all tune in this week. Just don't forget that we have Pride merch. And on top of just having Pride merch, we have a discount code for you. So go ahead and plug in Pride, P-R-I-D-E, to get 15% off. And with that, let's get into it. Welcome back, nature lovers, to another episode of the Birdie Bunch Podcast, where we talk everything conservation, education, and fascination. My name is Brittany, and I'm joined today by my two friends and co-hosts. I'm CJ. And I'm Matt. How are we doing this week, folks? I'm not going to lie to you. I'm a little bit overwhelmed. I'm a little bit overwhelmed. It's just been really busy. It's been really, really busy. I've been good, but a little bit overwhelmed. Matthew, how are you? Doing all right. I feel a little bit overwhelmed as well because research and a full-time job is pretty crazy. Um, but at the same time, I'm loving what I'm doing. Had a couple really great Raptor programs, so it's been a lot of fun regardless. And I'm thankfully not overwhelmed but i did just come back from a really awesome trip we had a wedding we went to but we stayed in iowa and we were we decided we wanted to go on like a morning hike and we went to the mines of spain in iowa and oh my god it was so beautiful just like the hiking was fantastic we got to see lots of birds don't ask me which ones because i don't know um (laughs) but we sat and appreciated them from afar actually that's not true we saw a goldfinch uh which i think i saw when we went hiking in crestwood a few weeks ago but it was like this beautiful yellow bird with black tip wings and gorgeous um we got to see some bigfoot houses uh little forts um and it was just a really just overall a splendid fantastic time so uh just getting back home from that and just kind of reeling on all good vibes oh Brittany, you had a pretty accurate description of a goldfinch there and i saw some pictures of your bigfoot houses maybe you can did you did you post that already on on your instagram you know, I haven't. And so maybe that's what, no spoilers, but maybe uh, that'll be on this week on my Instagram. I think that'd be pretty cool to see. I think that'd I be think pretty so. cool to see. All right. Well, now that we have sufficiently gone over how we're all feeling this week, I think we can head on over to our first segment, the creature feature. <laughs> all right everybody so today is a creature feature that i'm fairly fairly excited about does anyone have any non-spoilery guesses anything that you know might give a little bit of a clue of what we're looking at today I mean, you could say that this species is an absolute work of art. Yeah, yeah, you know, like a Crayola. I recently had a brush with this species when I was in Georgia. Did you really? Did you really? I'm sure your face was painted with joy, wasn't it? It was. It was. Mm -hmm. So many colors. So many colors. Mm -hmm. You know. I actually saw it while I was looking at a couple alligators. It was just like hanging out by the alligators, which was really cool. Oh. Huh. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Old move cotton. Let's see how it works out for him. Brittany, how about you? Any 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 puns? No. And I'm trying to sit here and figure out one real fast. You know, I, I took a picture of this of this uh species and it's uh in, in the in the in my photo gallery uh, on mm-hmm. my phone. Well you're painting a really great picture, CJ. Very good. Mm-hmm. I, I, I got to get there. It just takes a second. <laughs> you see, I'm glad to see that none of us are bunting on these pun opportunities because... Uh, only knocking them out of the park. Only knocking them out of the mm-hmm. park. 
because today's creature feature is none other than the painted bunting, a North American bird species. Like I said, our creature feature this week is the beautifully, brightly colored painted bunting. These little birds are essentially pretty much every color of the rainbow. So suffice to say, they carry a little bit of pride with them just about everywhere they go. These rainbow birds are made up of some of the brightest blues and greens and yellows and reds that you will ever see combined in correlation of just one specific organism. I don't think I can think of any other species that takes all the brightest colors across the spectrum of color and smashes them into one animal. And while the males are the ones who display all of these specific bright and bold colors, females are also a really gorgeous bright green. They kind of turn the bird world on its head when we think about female birds as being brown and drab and stuff like that. They definitely don't know what they're talking about, especially if they haven't seen a female painted bunting. The French name of the species, in fact, Nampereau, means without equal, which is a reference to the absolute dazzling plumage that these birds have. You can normally find them in the American Southeast, you know, near Florida, or like CJ alluded to, Georgia. But needless to say, you know, if you're looking at alligators even, this bird will absolutely catch your eye. Yeah, it was it was one of the birds that I really wanted to see. I was in South Carolina and Georgia for a wedding, like I mentioned last week, and then just doing some herping and birding. And it was one of the birds that I really, really wanted to see while I was down south because they don't really come up to Chicago too often. So I was pretty stoked when I got to see this rainbow little friend in a place that I had never been to. So it was really, really cool. It's a, It's a beautiful, beautiful bird. Last year... Or maybe it was even two years ago now. I think it was when we first featured the rainbow lorikeet as a pride creature feature. Matt mentioned the, the painted bunting all those years ago. So uh, the painted bunting has not left my mind. That's for sure. Yeah, I will say it's kind of beautiful to see this creature feature come full circle. It's been a couple of years that it's been sitting lurking in the background waiting for its time to shine. Even though, uh, if you see a picture of this bird, you'll know it shines all year round. Like oh, so brightly, is, oh, so brightly. Everyone, you know, when you look at bird color and diversity, Southern United States, Northern Central America is a big place to where you get a lot of eye popping species. You get green jays. You get all these beautiful, beautiful birds, and somehow the painted bunting still takes it up a notch. So. They're really, really incredible, and they absolutely have a lot to be proud of, not only this month, but all months of the year. Well, with that creature sufficiently, uh, what do the folks call it, um, sufficiently featured, why don't we head on into our current event section of this episode? <music> So my current event for this week actually comes from sciencealert.com and it's from late May. So still pretty recent and it's titled, are you ready for this? Evolution may be happening up to four times faster than we thought. So a new research study was published in late May that suggests that Darwinian evolution could be happening up to four times faster than previously thought based on analysis of genetic variation. So there's a bunch of genetic variations between different species, and that's how, kind of how speciation happens is through these genetic differences that happen. And the faster that evolution can happen, the faster that certain traits die off and stronger ones get established. Um, the team behind this study calls it the fuel of evolution, and they actually looked at data on 19 different wild animal groups from around the globe, which absolutely fascinating so among some of the species that they study were superb fairy wrens which i'm pretty sure is my favorite bird of all time i saw it when i was in australia it's a stunning stunning little tiny blue bird spotted hyenas in tanzania song sparrows in canada red deer in scotland it's the first time that the speed of evolution has ever been assessed on a large scale 
So the average length of each of these field studies was an impressive 30 years with details of births, deaths, matings, offspring all recorded. And the shortest was 11 years, uh, the longest being 63 years. So these studies took place over a crazy amount of time. And that was an adequate amount of time to study how quickly evolution has been happening. The researchers that gave a total of 2.6 million hours of field data to combine all of their data to get the genetic information for this project. Because they had so much data, it took them over three years to eventually break down all this data and see what it really means. And they eventually quantified how much each species had actually been changed and how what that caused their genetics to look like and you know how the natural selection really happened in those species. So although Charles Darwin initially thought that evolution was this really slow process, we're seeing research that evolution is really just happening so, so quickly. It's really fascinating when you look at some of these specific uh, case studies that this current event mentioned specifically. And it, you know, I, I don't know if we have time to get into all that today. Maybe we can come back to a similar topic in the future. But basically the research has shown that evolution can't be kind of thrown away as this process that you know oh this species is going to die out we don't know but basically it's just animals are animals plants pretty much everything is going to adapt to change whatever that means right and that is seen in how much change has happened in the globe all over the world right yeah and that's that's really what uh, this this current event is all about is how quickly evolution is happening do you have any thoughts about that that's wild. We've definitely alluded to stuff like that in the past. I know, I believe we've mentioned about how elephants are actually losing these large tusks because of the selective pressure that poachers put on them. Um, and that's not, you know, it's very hard to quantify when you're looking at traditional senses of evolution. You know, at what point do you look at the elephant and go, that's a completely different species from the one that had tusks? But even then, like, you're watching evolution in real life, like, at, like, currently walking alongside with it. Um, and that's been, you know, largely the past 30, 40, 50 years. So, needless to say, it's not surprising to hear that. But at the same time, four times faster is an absolutely ridiculous statistic that, like, once quantified, like, that's wild. That is crazy cool. I I'm was just so, so impressed by the amount of that. like research that went into this. That's what I was oh, really yeah. impressed by. That is a huge project. I'm very excited to look into that article. Like very excited. Yeah, I think I think it's a great it was a great article to share because I think, yeah, just like the mind-blowing factor of that, of like you grow up and you think about how well, evolution, it takes hundreds and hundreds of years for anything to actually like make a noticeable change or whatever. And that's what we were taught as kids. Right. But like to, to hear that there's been so much to put, put in to actually find out, actually, no, it's happening in real time. And there's actual, I don't know. I just think it's really interesting. Um, and thank you for sharing. Yeah, of course. Of course. I just, this literally fits exactly like kind of the stuff we talk about in the podcast all the time. And I just really thought that y'all would get a kick out of this one as well as maybe the nature lovers would get kicked out of it too. But with our current event currently evented, let's, uh, <laughs> let's jump into our main topic for this episode. So we are here now with our guest, Forrest Cortez. Forrest, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself? Hi, everyone. My name is Forrest Cortez. My pronouns are he, his. And I'm very excited to be here today with all of you to talk a little bit about some of the work and volunteer work that I do. Amazing. Well, Forrest, I guess, you know, this episode we're doing kind of all things out in nature. Can you talk to us a little bit about what is out in nature? So out in nature is a group of people that get together and build community first and foremost and meet one another but also get out and see all of the outdoor spaces and uh, green areas and nature experiences that Chicagoland has to offer, because we do have a lot of that, as I'm sure regular listeners will know. And this group 
uh, means a lot to me personally. So my work is in the conservation industry. I work on my day job with the Nature Conservancy as Director of Community Engagement. But I'm a Chicagoan at heart. And so I grew up playing in the parks in the city and going to the lakefront and going to the forest preserves for graduation parties and barbecues and such. And I've always had a deep respect for the natural areas and outdoor spaces around Chicago. And also I'm a gay man. And um, throughout my college experience, I found a lot of community uh, in the deep south where I went to school at Auburn University with other queer and LGBTQIA people in the outdoors, going out to the state park, climbing the waterfall, catching lizards, um, doing all kinds of nerdy things that I was passionate about and helped me find my people. So I kind of have that history of like community building through nature as like a personal story, both with my family and friends, but also with people that I've met along the way in my career. And I wanted to see if other people were looking to do cool stuff outside in nature um, as a bunch of cool, I think, queer, nerdy people and people who just want to meet other people. So we we host monthly uh, meetups at least is what I usually say, because often we host more than monthly events, especially now that we have a leadership team on board to get people outside. And this is like this group is really special. Um, and it, sometimes it's hard for people to understand, but I think I'm in good company here. It's it's an affinity space. And so what that means is that it is a space exclusively built by and for LGBTQIA people. And we have a leadership team of over 15 volunteers, including you, CJ, which we're incredibly lucky to have you. Oh, um, stop. <laughs> it's an honor and a privilege. <laughs> but we we like we're creating this for ourselves. No one's building it for us. And we decide how we want to experience the outdoors. We decide, you know, the types of things we'd like to do, the days we want to do them. And this is just a place to kind of organize some of that and to get people connected. That's amazing. Like I, that's just awesome. How did you kind of get that started? And like, how did that kind of all become to be? Yeah, so um, my fiance, Costin grew up in Indiana, just over the border from Chicago in like the region, if you're from Northwest Indiana. So, and then Northwest Indiana, if you're not from that area, but he kind of grew up like with easy access to what a lot of people consider to be like the outdoors. Right. And I grew up with that too, but it looked different for me. It was parks. It was the yard. It was playing in the alley, playing in the streets. Um, and he had a different experience. And so I like, I have so much excitement around getting out to see birds during spring migration, like catching every spring wildflower that I can before they senesce going into summer. And I often was dragging him out to do these things. And we're like, you know, like, we know there's other queer people, other LGBTQIA people who like either work in the industry or we, or we like meet on the trail, but there's not really like, anyone bringing everyone together to like truly connect, to get to know one another. And so in 2019, we're like, hey, let's let's host a couple of events and let's see how it goes. And Chicago Audubon Society at the time was an organization that helped us to get started and really kind of um, helped us to get the word out and put our events on their website. And so we had like our first couple of events and we had a few people come out and that was really exciting and amazing. And some of those people are still with Out in Nature, including on our leadership team today. And then it just started to pick up steam and Costin and I continued to organize events, really pulling on a lot of the partners that I've worked with over the years in conservation across Chicago, like the Shedd Aquarium, like the Chicago Park District to help host these experiences for free for our communities, which is really important. And then last year, towards the end of the last year, I was like, you know, there's so much demand for events. We have so many amazing people who are regularly coming to events like let's create a leadership team and that way we can host more events and more people can help to shape the future of this so now we have this amazing beautiful volunteer leadership team shaping up first of all i have to say i really not only appreciate hearing the story behind you know everything that you've built so far but just uh your emphasis on community too is i think such a beautiful summation of what it means to be going through this month and this initiative that we're doing with the birdie bunch is like trying to create the most inclusive community a group of people that everyone feel they can be themselves in and so i really love the story that you're telling and i'm so excited to see how it unfolds 
And I also was really curious because, you know, you did mention that you work for the Nature Conservancy as well. Uh, I was wondering, you know, what you do with the Nature Conservancy and is there any kind of like overlap between that and what you do with Out in Nature? Yeah, there's quite a bit of overlap. Um, and first, like Costin, my fiance and I co-founded Out in Nature, but it has been created by everyone who has helped us to organize events, everyone who's shown up to events. And so like we're building this thing together and, and now with the help of our leadership team, it's getting even better and better and better. And this work is like really, it's really fulfilling work because it's deeply personal to me, right? Like, it's not like I'm doing this for the benefit of someone else. Like I'm doing this for us. We enjoy doing this. It's a way also for us to relax, to decompress, to celebrate everything that our communities have to offer and to try to maybe take a few knocks at some of the stereotypes that people have that queer people don't get outside or, you know, that there aren't specific areas of expertise that our communities have related to getting to the outdoors and our lived experiences on the trail or at the park or walking down the block or in the birding communities. And so, yeah, it's, it's deeply personal work for out in nature, but community building is a part of what I do for my paid work as well. So my background is that I have a degree, a bachelor's degree in wildlife ecology and management but I like to say that I am much more of a generalist than that these days. I can't just focus on one thing at any given time species wise. And so like, I love all the things. I love the, the flowers, the grasses. I'm like, okay with the sedges. I love the trees, but um, really just into celebrating everything that we, we find in our communities um, across the city that is both like the diversity in people, but also the diversity in the landscape around us. And so my job at the Nature Conservancy, long story short, is Director of Community Engagement. And so I work across primarily Cook County with a team of four other staff members at the Nature Conservancy. We connect people through volunteer programs, paid career training programs, high school internships, and just general events and planning processes that bring people together to think about how we can build a healthier environment in our city, but also build healthier, stronger communities and uplift the expertise that's found across all of the different neighborhoods in Chicago and across the suburbs. And we're lucky to live in a place that has both incredible natural history and diversity and incredible community history, community affinity and diversity as well. I mean, all of us on the podcast, we're all Chicagoans at heart. We all kind of started here. I think some of us have grown a little bit, but uh, you know, we we absolutely know that Chicago is full of those beautiful natural spaces. Question for you, Forrest. This is a question that I think a lot about. I think it's a question that maybe some of our listeners think a lot about. But like, how can queer people, LGBTQIA plus people, feel included and safe in outdoor spaces? This is a hard question, and I think like this is one of those like million dollar questions, right? Like, I wish there was a magic bullet. I think it depends. <laughs> Um, but I have some ideas. I mean, I, I think there's different levels to this. There's like, there's like policymakers who have an influence. There's organizations that are working to get people outdoors. There's landowners who actually own the land where people are getting out, municipalities and counties and things like that. And then there's individuals, right? People who are on the trails next to maybe an LGBTQIA person, maybe a person of color, maybe a person who's getting outside for the first time maybe someone who's had uh, a traumatic experience in nature. And I actually think that like working down that list, like the individual responsibility to create safe space for people outdoors is probably the most important because like whether you're a landowning employee or you work for the government or something like that, or a nonprofit, like you're still an individual at heart and chances are you spend time outdoors. And so I think the responsibility is on users of these spaces first and foremost to create safe space for their fellows, for their peers. And I think there's a couple ways to do that. I mean, one of the ways is, is like learning a bit about the communities that use the trails with you, right? Like there are still so many, it blows my mind, like especially today when we have Black Birders Week, when we have Latino Conservation Week, when we have like social media, <laughs> it's like there's so many people that think of like the expertise and the experience of being outdoors as being this like monolith of this very like cisgender white male experience of like cutting down a tree with a beard and being a lumberjack and maybe like, I don't know, hunting something. And that's like 
yeah, that is an experience outdoors and that's an important and valid connection to the outdoors. But there are so many other ways that people experience the outdoors. And I think if you stay in your circle, if you don't take the time to observe the people around you who are using green spaces and learn a little bit about the ways that communities have cultural connections to nature, you're never gonna be able to create a diverse and inclusive trail experience, pond experience, wetland experience, prairie experience for anyone whether you're an individual or working for a nonprofit. I also think it's really important to find chances to listen intentionally, like really like we like to share a lot when we're outside. I think many of us, cause we get so excited, right? And we, we, we know a lot about the outdoors. Those of us who work in the industry or spend a lot of time somewhere, but asking questions, listening, giving the space for someone else to share their experience or their expertise is really important. And it's, not just nice to do, it's essential to do because we need those voices. We need our LGBTQIA family to be able to speak up and share the expertise that we have. Um, and pay, like organizations can pay LGBTQIA people to help create programs, right? Like landowners, organizations, this is a specific lived experience set of expertise that you can't find anywhere else except in our very diverse communities, right? And we're all, we all have different backgrounds. We all have different identities. We all have intersecting identities, but find the experts that might not be the usual lineup of suspects, but who have incredibly rich perspectives and experience to share and have them co-create your programs, have them lead something for you and pay them to do it and promote them and pay them more and hire them. So that's those are a few ideas. I don't know if that is exactly what you were looking for, but those are some rambling reflections. I mean, it works. It works. <laughs> we were, you were just kind of talking about how ways like that people could, can really make things more welcoming and, and, and how different groups can really help the community. How do you, how do you think, how do you feel natural spaces could be more welcoming for LGBTQA plus people? Um, there's a few things I really like. I love when green spaces are free and you know there's no associated cost for people to enter. Um, there's still a lot of places that charge fees for events and for special experiences. And I think that can be a barrier um, for not just our LGBTQIA communities, but also for other communities. Um, I also think that Again, when we're designing these spaces, when we're getting grants to restore these spaces, when we're developing programs for these spaces, the physical amenities are really important. You know, not everyone is ready to be bushwhacking off the trail or can be bushwhacking off the trail. I think it's important to design spaces for people with disabilities, with people with disabilities, for BIPOC people, with BIPOC people. And those are all identities that are represented across the LGBTQIA spectrum, right? These are identities that are part of our communities. They're part of the diversity that you find in that acronym in that acronym that is like kind of the go-to. And I think like bringing people in who are reflective of those diverse identities in the initial building of a new natural area or the creation of a program is a really important way to make the physical spaces more accessible to people because you never know unless you ask. And I think also designing spaces that have room for like multi-generational and very open-ended gathering space. I don't know if that makes sense. Like, I think it's really important to create gathering spaces in natural areas, in green spaces where people can just hang out. Like there's this stigma against like loitering and like, what are you doing hanging around the park depending on who you are. And I think building those spaces, and we lose that a lot when, when we get to a certain age group, when we're designing for a certain age group. I think a lot of green spaces that are made for kids have play elements, they have seating elements, they have all these different nodes and different ways that kids can interact with the space. But when we design spaces with adults and families in mind, um, we don't often have all those same nodes for people to experience the space in different ways. And I think that's really important and something that I'd love to see more of. Like it's almost like an adult playground. Like where, where, where can we hang out? Where can we like exercise? Where can we touch things? Where can we go off trail? Um, and just having those different um, opportunities to interact. 
Forrest, you talked a lot about like intersectionality there, right? I think it's really important to bring that up, especially, you know, one during Pride Month, Black Birders Week was just a few weeks ago. It's constantly on our minds is intersectionality. You know, one thing that we talk a lot about here, that we talk about in person is the idea of like how people enjoy nature. So when we are we have friends who are at birdability, they always say birding is just the act of enjoying birds. Yeah. Being in nature is like being a nature person is just enjoying nature. Like are you outside and you're liking it? You're a nature person now. I don't know. I guess how does that like sentiment of like nature doesn't need to be like gate kept? Can you talk anything to that? Yeah. Ooh. So I'm like getting goosebumps because I just think about all that there is to unpack there, right? There's a lot to unpack there. I think first and foremost is this idea that nature has to be this like untouched, pristine from an ecological science, Western scientist perspective place. I don't agree with that. I think that nature can be, you know, a scrap of turf grass. It can be a vacant lot where people are playing and seeing pollinators and seeing birds as they pass through. And, um, and I think nature takes different forms depending on who you ask. So I think it's really important, again, to like steep ourselves in those different perspectives as people who care about the environment, as people who care about the outdoors and get a little bit outside of what we would define as nature to learn how other people are defining it. So then by default, if like nature is not a monolith, then also the way we care for nature, the way we experience nature is just as diverse. And so the, I've always said that stewardship can take many forms and that that's another thing where we have this image in our head of environmental stewardship means you have to be marching or you have to be planting a tree or you have to be pulling invasive species or um, organizing a volunteer day. I think that for many communities, including our LGBTQIA communities, being in an outdoor space is an act of stewardship, right? Because we're building connection to the land and that may never translate into me as an individual planting a tree in the ground. Well, that's a bad example because I will always plant a tree in the ground, but like an individual planting a tree in the ground, but it's still a valid form of stewardship because that person has a connection to the land. That person is building a relationship to that outdoor space, to nature as they want to experience it. And they're, they're going to advocate for it. They're going to be present. They're going to bring their expertise, their lived perspectives into that space. And I think that's really important. So, you know, and those perspectives differ. There's been people at Out in Nature who have come to me and said, hey, like, I just want to say, I've never, I've always wanted to come to this green space. This happened at the Indiana Dunes, but I've never felt safe enough to come by myself. And so like, when you hear a perspective like that, and even for me as like a cisgender, you know, could be straight presenting person on the trail, you remember that there's, there's different places where different people feel safe or unsafe, where people have like levels of accessibility to that space. And so it just reminds us of the work ahead to make sure that we're we're understanding that first and foremost and listening for that and being attuned to that and that we're adapting the way we plan programs, the way we um, design policies, the way we um, build relationships so that we can address some of those barriers. Um, and it's not just out of nature, right? It's, it's, it's the work I do at the Nature Conservancy when we work with communities of color. It's the, it's the conversations I've had with women, you know, white straight women about being outside by themselves in certain places. And so I think there's there's a lot of work to be done to kind of unpolice the ways that we can experience nature and also step back from this idea that there's only a small handful of ways to properly enjoy the outdoors. You know, one thing, and this is um, a very specific point that you made, but I like my like my bell went off because this is something I've been largely very passionate about as well is you touched upon like these vacant urban lots and stuff like that um and i have always been passionate about that interface zone between like urban environments and how you can reclaim so many spaces that are already green but like you know make them into these beautiful little vibrant communities and i was wondering if you could talk about any experiences you have with just like augmenting and amplifying conservation in these communities that have been so almost cast aside for no reason except for their personal identities if you could talk about if you have any stories about that or just specifically about that i i really loved that you brought that up because it's something that i love so much yeah well vacant lots are like 
a place where there's a lot of magic to happen, right? It's a place where you can have a baseball game. It's a place where you could have a picnic where you can just hang out after school. I actually, so I like stories a lot. My dad grew up on the Southwest side of Chicago um, in the Brighton Park area, right by the railroad tracks. And there were a lot of vacant lots at the time along the railroad tracks. And so some of my earliest like nature and wildness stories were about him talking about like playing in these overgrown, what I can only imagine to be like invasive grasses and lots of what an ecologist would call weeds and totally unkempt, but like just having these amazing like stories of playing with his friends, like in these vacant lots along the train tracks and like the birds that they would see and the flowers throughout the season and really like valuing those spaces as you know it's not that there weren't parks mckinley park was down the street he would run there for uh, cross-country practice but this was closest to home and this was a place where like it was almost an extension of the front yard in some ways and so i think that's like really beautiful and really exciting and it's um it was actually a gateway for him like my dad does not work in the conservation field right now but after he you know, moved out on his own, moved out of the neighborhood. Instead of going to college, he moved out west and worked a conservation corps job in Yellowstone and some of the natural areas out west. And so, again, at the time, he like, it was a job, right? And it was an experience that was different. It was a chance to kind of see another part of the country. But I think a lot of that was inspired by like being able to play outside, getting comfortable being outdoors in the way that he wanted to. And then I got this treasure trove of like elk stories and wolf stories and bison stories that helped to inspire me from a young age, along with those stories that I could see the places where he played as a kid when we would go visit my grandma. And so it was, it was like the collection of these stories that had a lot of momentum for me. So it's just, I tell that story because, you know, yes, I'm an ecologist and yes, I work in community engagement in conservation. And yes, I love hiking and birding and backpacking, but I, I'm always down for like hanging out in a vacant lot or going, you know, going for a walk in a place that might have an unexpected source of inspiration and being in a city park, right? Like even if it has a natural area or doesn't have a natural area, I think those are all valid ways to experience nature. And as someone who has like roots with all of those different ways to experience nature, I can understand why it's important to uplift that and to not look down on those different types of experiences that have brought a lot of people great joy and great learning experiences and great sources of connection over the years. I'm curious, like, this is a question that I really, I don't know if I'm allowed to ask questions. You're always but, allowed to ask questions. Okay. I want to know, like, what is everyone's, like, earliest memory of, like, of an inspiring nature experience, right? Like, it could be, like, a backyard. It could be, like, a walk to the park. Like, what... What was that spark for all of you? My earliest memory was actually going to the zoo with my mom. Um, we used to live really close to Brookfield Zoo and we used to bike there. And so her and I would just bike to the zoo. And um, the one, the earliest memory I have is actually watching a horse chat. Um, it was a zoo, couple of zookeepers who were just grooming these horses. And I stood there just like amazed and in awe. And they actually let me go back there and brush one of the horses with them. And it kind of like kickstarted this like, whoa, I want to do this. And it kickstarted my, I want to be out in nature, but I also want to make those connections for others. And so for me, I... I've had lots of different roles, but being able to in, in different zoos and aquariums, but for me, it's, I want to make those same connections and memories that those zookeepers made for me. So, um, yeah, I was probably like four, uh, when that happened. So that's my earliest memory. So I don't know if you noticed the look on my face when, um, Brittany mentioned the Brookfield zoo, that was exactly where my mind went. Um, which is funny because Brookfield Zoo, I think, is a part of all of our, and this is the first reference of it in season three, yeah. our shared collective past. Yeah, this is where it's where we all met was the it's, Brookfield Zoo and our shared collective. Just, just because there was nothing that facilitated that, just because it's just our shared collective past. <laughs> 
Um, but you know, another one that I have too is my grandfather when I was growing up lived in the very north woods, Wisconsin, in a town of like a hundred people or something like that. Like there was no one there. It was woods, it was bogs, it was lake. And I remember going up summers all the time, and I never really truly understood the natural connection side to it, if that makes sense. Like I, you know, I'm like four or five kind of at Britney's age, and I'm looking at this place and I don't see like a treasure trove of fish diversity. I I hear a loon call when I wake up. I go out and I see Papa on the boat or something like that. I know when I cast my line in, I'm catching a bluegill and then it's hopping out of my hand and landing on my brother's head. He's got like a little faint scar because when he was like a baby, he got smacked in the head with a sunfish spine down. And so like kind of like the way you've described, which is why I feel so emphatic when I hear you talk about your experience in spaces is just because like for me, it was about the connection that I had just in general with the space, but with the people and all the people utilizing that space at the same time. It was the community that I got, and that kind of drives what I kind of try to do now. I, I live out in Ohio, so like the, uh, the Ohio-Chicago connection has severed me a little bit, and it makes me sad. <laughs> but, you know, there's always this goal as like a naturalist is what I'm doing currently to give people the opportunity to facilitate that own connection for themselves. I love doing programs. And I love doing Raptor shows. We have a Raptor rehab center and all that, but it's really about, I can give you, I can present a potential step to you. And if you want to take that step, if you want to jump in and dive in and use this in whatever way you deem good for yourself, that's what I think is, so inspiring about it and so like i think i've taken that from my grandpa too like that place connected me to him in a way that families camping i now can give them the access to a state park to do the same exact thing yeah i think my my mind also jumped to a zoo story uh, but i'm not going to share a zoo story actually um so my the first like house that like i grew up in was in streamwood illinois which is very far from chicago um, not very far, I guess, but far enough where I didn't really feel like a connection to the city yet, uh, like I do now. Um, but we lived next to this like giant field and it was just like an empty grassy field. And in the giant field, there was this massive rock, at least what I thought was a massive rock. Like I had to like climb to get to the top of this rock. I mean, I've gone back to the rock. It's about two and a half feet tall. But <laughs> it was just like covered in like moss and it was just like, I don't know. I think about that rock a lot just because, I don't know, I, I, I imagine little me trying to climb to the top of the rock not knowing all the things that I know now. And I, I don't know, I, I really, it's a story that I feel like I didn't even realize had connected me to nature. Um, probably until this moment. So I appreciate you kind of sparking that memory for me, Forrest. I really appreciate that. I love that. I love all those stories. And I I like to ask that. And I do that with a lot of young people that I work with at the Nature Conservancy because I just believe, I believe like we tend to like approach conservation programs and environmentalism as like there's a deficit to be filled. Like people are lacking a connection to nature. Like nobody's connected to nature. Nobody gets outside these days. And I don't believe that's true. Like I, I think everyone has like, even if it's out the window, right? Like people see nature every day, wherever you are, it just looks different. And so I, I'm still waiting to find someone who has no connection to nature. What I found is that people have connections to nature. It's just a different definition. It's just a different experience than what we might have. And those of us who go through like ecological training, like I don't like to spend time on my degree because I feel like all of those experiences that led me to my degree playing you know, in the alley with my neighborhood friends, walking to the park with my parents at a very young age, picking raspberries with my grandma in her backyard. Like that all was part of my training to get here. And I think that's like a way I like to look at my work um, as a community engagement professional working in conservation. And when I'm thinking about like, what kind of programs do we wanna build for out in nature? Um, kind of going back even past the formal degree, past the job titles and just thinking about like the stuff that just got me excited to be outside or outdoors or in nature, whatever we want to call it, and kind of grounding myself in that when we're when we're having these conversations. Cause I think that helps 
uplift that expertise that sometimes gets left out because we're so busy thinking about degrees and training and job titles. It's like, well, we've all had these lived experiences that are actually pretty darn informative and can really help us kind of take some steps to create more inclusive and um, more enjoyable programs. Yeah, I, I want to jump off of that point there for us because like everybody here has obviously felt some kind of inspiration from nature in some way. We've all felt that connection. And you are in fact making an inspiration by, you know, you and Costin starting out in nature, like it's huge. So one, thank you for starting out in nature because I'm a part of it and it's the best. And also so many other people are a part of it. There's what, like 300 members in the Facebook group now? Yeah, we're growing and we have an email list. And what I love about Out in Nature is that because we host events all over and the events vary in focus, like we've done rock climbing, we've done bird watching, we've done uh, nature experiences where we move through parks, where we move through forest preserves. I think what's really cool is that we pull different people depending on what the event is, where it's hosted, and how people heard about it. So it's not like this exclusive group of like 10 to 15 people that are always there. And if you come, you're going to be feeling left out. It's a totally like mixed group of people from many different backgrounds, many different identities. And it kind of becomes like this fun soup of, <laughs> of people. That's like a bad way to put it. But like a fun mix of people based on where the event is, what the event is. And I think that's part of what makes it so special. Amazing. Forrest, do you want to like plug where one, people can find out in nature and two, where people can find you? Yeah. So I would say, and um, probably our leadership team would be happy to hear me say this, like first stop for out in nature is outinnatureshy.wordpress.com. So visit our website. It will link you to all of our social media, a contact form, upcoming events, out in nature, shy, out in nature, chi.wordpress.com is the best place to start. And if you're just wanting to connect with us on Instagram, it's out in nature shy. That's our handle. And if you want to connect with me on Instagram, it's at urban Tarzan with two N's. And that's Forrest Cortez. That's how you can get in touch with me. Amazing. Thank you so much for being a guest on the Birdie Bunch podcast, Forrest. Yeah, thank you for having me. You all are awesome. And I always look forward to see what topics you will cover and can't wait to, to see this come out. It'll come out real soon. I know. I'm so excited. <laughs> We just want to say thanks again uh, to Forrest for joining us here on the podcast. It was lovely having you on and lovely chatting. So go follow Forrest on their social media. And you can also follow us on our social media at the Birdie Bunch Podcast. Um, and that's on Instagram, Facebook, on all the social needs. Um, but you can find us individually as well. You can find me on Instagram at the Brittany Bunch, uh, T H E B R I T T A N Y underscore B is in Brichter, U N C H. You had to be bullied a little. You can find me and Matt Valga. That is M A T T V is in Victor, A L I G A. Um, still trying to get some stuff going on. Um, it looks like posting and stuff will actually probably be ramping up. We got some stuff going on at the university that I really shouldn't talk about, but keep your eyes out on that. So um, posts from work. I'd love to post some pictures of the stuff that I'm doing. Just have to make sure that like I'm allowed to because I work for a government, which means there's rules and I don't know all of them. So I got to get that figured out. Big brother's watching. That's what Big brother's about. always watching. And that's the first thing I was taught. When I was always like always watching. Yeah, I'm always watching Wazowski. So like, I'm like Wazowski. Odinar is always watching. Thank you for coming to my TED Talk. You can also find me on Instagram at cj.greco. That's cj.greco. And I've just been posting some of the stuff that I've been seeing around recently. I recently started a new job. So maybe I'll post some pictures from around my new job. Who knows? Who knows what's going to happen? The world is crazy. But it's Pride Month, and I'm proud. Um, anyway, what's the other things that we can talk about? Because I don't remember. Brittany? <laughs> <laughs> Great question, CJ. You can also check us out on our website at thebirdiebunchpodcast.com. 
We've got our blog posts. It's where our merch store is. All that fun jazz. So check it out. There's lots of things going on. I'm just going to plug this at the end as well. We've got awesome merch that came out for Pride Month. And if you use the code PRIDE, P-R-I-D-E, you get 15% off your order. But you can't beat that. Go get you some. But if you can't or you don't want to, please share this podcast with a friend. But if you're looking for other ways to be like, I want to go further than that, go ahead and and uh, become our patron on Patreon. Thank you to Gabe Anderley for being our patron. It was awesome having you on podcast a few weeks ago. And it is even, even more awesome, awesomer, however you want to say it, having you as one of our patrons. So you get lots of cool stuff being one of our patrons. Like that awesome shout out I just gave to Gabe. Um, but you can do extra tiers or other tiers where you can get a whole bunch of uh, fun things like an exclusive episode or seeing all the crazy recording sessions um, that we do because it's always a fun time and there's always some crazy. And you can do that on patreon.com slash the Brady Bunch podcast. So check it out. Yeah. And with that, I think that wraps us up, nature lovers. So we'll catch you next time. Bye. Next time. Ouch. We'll catch you next time on the Birdie Punch Podcast. This is a cute ending. It's all staying in. Thanks so much, all you nature lovers, for listening to yet another episode of the Birdie Bunch Podcast. We would especially like to thank Sarah Dunlap for designing our art for our episodes, as well as Connor Whitman for producing our music. The mission of the Birdie Bunch podcast is to inspire an inclusive community for conservation by using education to promote fascination.